Go and find Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> Exodus 3. As I welcome you here on a, uh, a rainy Sunday morning, I will go ahead and also extend the invitation to be back this afternoon at 5 o'clock. We will uh, begin again our monthly Q&A night, which we uh, didn't do last month because our gospel meeting. Tonight, I actually intend on answering as many as three questions. I, I have a question on Jesus, I have a question on the Holy Spirit, and I have a question on dictators. Uh, there is a chance one of those might get cut because the third one is uh, starting to get longer. But come back and we will uh, do, do as much as we can. Tonight at 5, Q&A night. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up to that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, <clears throat> that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The Oval Office is, uh, is one of the most well-known, it's the most well-known and most distinctive room in the White House. Uh, it's, an, as I understand it, a pretty imposing room to be in. Uh, I'm told it was designed to be sort of an imposing room. It has this unusual oval shape. It has very high ceilings. It's decorated with many priceless uh, pieces of artwork and furniture. And in many ways, it's the center of the free world. And there's a long record of history, uh, people in history, who are called into the Oval Office to visit with the president and as soon as they get in that room, a lot of their sort of plans uh, kind of go to pieces and they clam up. Even if going in they're a fierce political opponent or the head of state of maybe an adversarial nation, the gravitas and the awe of the building and the room and the office just has a way of kind of making people weak in the knees and dry in the mouth. And I think that's sort of like what a meeting with God would be like. That's what happens with Moses here. The idea of speaking with the creator of the universe about anything, just about what you had for lunch, that's a pretty astounding thought. But God doesn't talk to Moses about his lunch. He come, comes to Moses with a mission. Can you imagine God coming to you and asking you to be the leader of his chosen people, to lead them out of Egyptian slavery and into the land that was promised your forefather Abraham? It's an astounding moment. And so in response to this, to this great call to come lead my people, what does Moses do? Does he immediately man up 
and take on this task given by the Almighty God and set out to deliver his people at that moment. That's not quite what happens. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And it's not just one excuse there that he offers to God why he can't do this. There's actually five excuses he gives. An excuse is an attempt to duck responsibility. An attempt to find a reason why I shouldn't have to accept the responsibility that's been given to me. And it occurs to me as we read this story of Moses that there is a lot we can learn from Moses' excuses and find ourselves in the shoe of Moses, shoes of Moses, and noticing how God cuts through every last one of Moses' excuses. So let's think this morning about cutting through excuses. There are going to be two parts to our study. Number one, we're going to study the excuses Moses made, and we're going to draw some lessons out of them and how God answers them. And number two, I want to evaluate some of the excuses we often find ourselves making, which are sort of along the same lines as Moses's. And I'll be right up front with you about my goal this morning. My goal is to cut through and remove any excuse you have been using to avoid wholehearted discipleship. That's what I'm up to this morning. My hope is is that as a result of our study, you will stop trying to fool God and fool other people and fool yourself with reasons why you can't serve God right now with everything that you are and everything that you have. I want to get out the axe and start chopping down our excuses. So let's begin with the excuses that Moses made. There's a a pattern that emerges in this text. Moses offers an excuse for why he can't answer God's call, followed by God either reassuring him about the excuse that he's made and reassuring him that this need not be a reason, or God will often make provisions. Here's how I'll see see after that and, and overcome this, and then... Eventually, it just turns to outrage and disgust on the part of God. But God cuts through every single one of Moses' excuses. So let's observe the pattern. The first excuse, as we've read in verse 11, is this. Who am I? Verse 11 again. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring bring out the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses picks a convenient time to be humble. That's what he does here. Who am I? Little old me? To do this great thing? I can't do that. And I think it's interesting that, that at, at times, humility comes with great difficulty to us. It comes with great difficulty to me many times. If we feel we're not getting the credit we deserve, we are very quick to self-righteously list our accomplishments and our contributions and how we deserve more credit and how we've done, done much more than you've attributed to me. And yet there are other times when humility we're quite eager with, conveniently eager to, to be humble. When someone tells us to step up to the plate, and we don't want to. When someone tells us that we should be doing something that's a little bit out of our comfort zone, we get get really quick on the humility card. We say, oh, who am I? I'm just a simple man. I don't have that talent. Someone else would be better suited than me. We understand that that while Moses is is sort of pretending to be humble, and, and when we sort of pretend to be humble, it's really often just a lame attempt to duck responsibility. I want you to consider this about Moses. The guy that says, who am I? I want you to consider who Moses is. And that in reality, there is no one on the face of the earth better equipped for this job than Moses. He spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt as an adopted member of the royal family. He knows this nation and he knows this government better than any other Jew. He knows the ways of the Egyptians. He can have cachet when he enters 
the house of Pharaoh, the palace of Pharaoh would talk to him. He's well educated in the ways of the Egyptians. We also know he feels strongly about the injustice of the Egyptians toward the Israelites. And so in light of this, how does God respond? Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people, of Egypt, people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He says, I will be with you every step of the way. I will offer signs that reassure you that this really is what you ought to be doing. I want you to know this place we're having this conversation. You will return to. And I want all of this to come back to your mind that I've been with you the whole time and I did what I said. God cuts through this excuse. Who are you, Moses? You are the man I have chosen for this job. You are the man I will be with every step of the way. And so excuse number one falls to the ground. That brings number two, in which Moses asks, what do I say? This is verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And so he says, where do I start? How will I even know what to say? What do I even say is your name? In a way, I understand what Moses is getting at here. I wouldn't even know where to begin, where I confronted with this task. How does that work? Do you just walk up, do you just go back to Egypt and walk up to some Israelites and say, hey guys, I'm your leader now, come follow me and we'll leave Egypt together. I don't know how that starts. Well, of course, God gives him an answer to his, to his question, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's his name. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells Moses, first of all, his name. Uh, we, have spent, uh, we spent 40 minutes talking about this verse and this answer in a previous Q&A night. I'll refer you to that if you want to know about God's answer in more detail. But the rest of chapter 3 is God telling Moses in great detail exactly what he is to say to the Israelites. What do I say? God says, I'll tell you. And so God cuts down excuse number 2. That brings us to excuse number 3. The excuse, what if they don't listen? This is chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. What if they say I'm a crazy person? What if they demand proof for my claim that God spoke to me? How do I even prove such a thing without sounding like a nut job? How does God answer this objection? Verse 2. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. And so God's answer to, to Moses' question is to enable him to work signs, miracles. In the Bible, miracles are, are God's way of lending credibility to the messenger and confirming their message. When someone goes around saying, God spoke to me, generally we, we are well served to be skeptical of that claim and maybe conclude some things about their sanity. But when they say, God spoke to me, and they turn their staff into a serpent, now suddenly we're more inclined to take them seriously. In, in the Bible, miracles are never ends in themselves. They're never just a neat magic trick. 
They're never to enrich the worker of the miracle or for any reason other than to lend credibility to this messenger of God. Verse 5, God says this, verse 5, chapter 4 and verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So God is explicit on why I've given you this sign. So Moses, what if they don't listen to you? They will listen when they see the signs I have enabled you to do. And so God cuts through excuse number three. Excuse number four, I can't. This is chapter 4 and verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your serpent, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now the excuse amounts to this. God, I don't talk so good. There's various ideas about exactly what Moses is getting at. Maybe he had a speech impediment. Maybe he just wasn't much of a public speaker. Maybe he was shy. I don't know. In any case... Take Moses' answer for what it is, his excuse for what it is, another excuse for why he can't answer God's call. To which God responds, verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says, I'll tell you what to say, Moses. Don't you know I created the mouth? I created language and speech? God, the God who did all of that can make you a half-decent public speaker. When God says he'll be with you, when God says he will enable you to do what he said you can do, you should believe him. And so Moses says, God, I can't, to which God basically says, yes, you can, and I'll make sure of it that you can. And so excuse number four falls to the ground, limp and lifeless. Which brings us to excuse number five, in which Moses simply says, send someone else. Chapter 4 and verse 13. <clears throat> but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Anybody but me. And this is how God responds now, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. By this point, it's become obvious that Moses' reasons why he couldn't accept the call were not reasons at all. They were just excuses. And when he runs out of these excuses, when he runs out of reasons why he can't do what God told him to do, he finally just says what he was thinking all along, I think, which is basically this, I don't want to. That's what all of this amounted to. I don't want to. Send someone else. And at this point, God has done reasoning with Moses. He simply gets angry now. And so at this point in the story, God has cut through every single excuse Moses has made. Moses is out of reasons why he can't lead Israel. And he's left only with the choice he had in the beginning. The choice all along was this. Will I accept God's call or will I forsake it? Will I listen to God's voice or will I ignore it and find reasons why I don't have to do it? All the excuses in between that muddies up the issue. But the choice is, is that all along. And to his credit, Moses eventually does step up to the plate. But here's where I'm headed. The place where Moses gets here, having all his excuses shredded to pieces, is the place we need to get. Because like Moses, we often muddy up the water with reasons and excuses why we can't do what God said. But all along, there's a very simple, simple choice standing before us. God has spoken. Will I do what he has said, or will I not? 
Will I choose to submit to him or will I choose to rebel against him? All along, that's the simple choice before all of us. So that brings us to the second part of our lesson. As I read through these excuses Moses made, it made me make a list of the excuses we make. And if I'm honest, some excuses that I have made. So let's think about those. Let's think about the excuses we make. Number one, here's an excuse why we don't do what God said. Because I am just a blank sort of person. We could insert a lot of words in that blank. We could say, I am just an angry person. I get upset easily. I have a short temper. All the men in my family are like that, or all the women in my family are like that. We're just kind of fiery personalities. I'm just that sort of person. I'm just that way. We could say, I'm just a critical person. It's usually not put that way, but we put it like this. We say, well, I just like things to be done right. I just like things to be done my way, and when they're not, I have to say something about it. And if someone gets their feelings hurt about it, that's their problem, not mine. Someone else says, well, I'm a forgetful person, which is usually said as a, as, as a way to excuse some responsibility we've neglected or some promise we've broken. It's not as serious as you think it is because I have a, I have a, a long history of this sort of forgetfulness. Here's the question that I think cuts through this excuse. Does a personal habit or tendency somehow make our unrighteous actions less wrong? Does the fact that we have a tendency to do wrong lessen our responsibility for doing wrong? So is there a valid excuse to violate God's command to be slow to anger? Will God ignore that part of his word because I say I'm an angry person? Am I less accountable to that law because I have a tendency of breaking it? Or I actually might be more accountable to it. Is there a valid excuse to violate God's commands to be kind or gentle or forgiving or patient? Or will God overlook my critical negative divisive spirit because I say I'm a perfectionist? Does the fact that I forget a lot mean I shouldn't be held responsible for the promises and commitments I break? Or should it mean I should be held more responsible for the promises and commitments I break? This is what I'm getting at. There there is no such thing as a valid excuse for sin. It doesn't exist. Nothing we could ever say about ourselves makes sin any less sinful. Think about what we're really saying when we make this excuse. What we're really saying is I had no choice. I didn't have sufficient free will to change my behavior. It is so ingrained in me. This sort of sinful nature is so ingrained in me, I couldn't do anything else. Are we, really to, are we really ready to jump on that theological bandwagon? Are we ready to say we don't have sufficient free will to avoid sin? I'm not willing to go there. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. He's talking there to Gentiles, who if you read around are being described as going into lives of total debauchery, sin of every kind. And Paul says of these people, these people who were no Bible scholars, they had no excuse for their sin because they could see God's creation with their own eyes and they could conclude from seeing that creation that we are answerable to whoever made all of this. Those people were were without excuse for their sin. And so how can we think, as people who know God, not just from a sunrise, but intimately about him from his word, how could we ever think that we could have an excuse to sin like this? I'm just a blank sort of person. 
Here's another excuse we often use not to do what God told us. I have got other things going on. This is Luke 14. Turn with me to Luke 14. In Luke 14, Jesus has a parable of excuses. People who give reasons to him why they shouldn't, accept, shouldn't have to accept his invitation or why they can put off following Jesus until another time. Luke 14 and verse 16. But he said to him, a man who is uh, giving grand sentiments about how great the kingdom of God is, he sort of tells him a story emphasizing, you don't quite understand what I'm about here. This is Luke 14 and verse 16. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to examine them. Please excuse me. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out in the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, I've heard people sort of try to defend the excuse makers in this story. And on the surface, I suppose I can see the logic. You know, we could say, well, who's going to buy a field without looking at it? Isn't that a valid thing to do? But the issue at hand is not, should, should you buy a field without looking at it? That's not the, the, the scenario. This is not a lesson in real estate. What Jesus is getting at is, are we going to allow other things, no matter how pressing they might seem, no matter how potentially profitable they may be, are we going to let other things jump ahead of Jesus? And it doesn't really matter how valid those other things might seem. Jesus is offered an invitation to dinner. We're sort of getting into the interpretation of the parable now. Jesus is offered an invitation to his kingdom. And he is answered by people, maybe later, Jesus. We've got more urgent things to attend to. We've got more pressing things to attend to. Don't you know how important these are? And in saying that, they show Jesus to be less important than whatever it is they forsake him for. How, does the, how do the excuses make the master in the story feel? Did you notice the emotion, the emotional reaction to their excuses? Verse 21, the servant came and reported these things and the master of the house became angry. Remember how God reacted at the end of Moses' long string of excuses? He got angry with him. And they make Jesus angry when we offer them to him. This is verse 24. I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The lesson of this parable is, excuses are simple rejections. They're not reasons. Excuses are rejections, not reasons. We think our rationalizations for why we don't have to do what Jesus said or don't have to follow him totally now, we think they hold water. They sound good to us. They're plausible to other people. We can convince people they're valid. But this parable says, think of the excuse from God's perspective. The God who's trying to invite you in and give you life, and we say, no thanks. Does it really matter what we say afterward if we begin with no? Our excuses may be plausible or not. They may be clever or they may be silly. 
But at the end of the day, no matter what comes after the word no, we've simply said no to God. Jesus says, I'm looking for people who will seek my kingdom above all. People who will say yes to me, not no, and look for other things. Christians are a people united who have collectively said yes to God. We are not a people who have found elaborate reasons to say no to him. Don't put Jesus at the bottom of your to-do list. Make Jesus your to-do list. I've got other things going on. Jesus says, you're not fit for the kingdom the second you've said that. Number three, the excuse, I can't do it. This is 1 Corinthians 12. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12 and verse 14. <clears throat> For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, quote, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong in the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong in the body, that does not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of, this, of the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Skip down to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So one of, one of Paul's favorite images for the church, he uses this in a lot of his, his letters, is, is as the body. And the individual members are the constituent parts of that body. Now, the the Corinthians were worked up because they believed some people were more important than others in the church. For some reason, tongue speaking was just the the height of spirituality to them. And they were sort of wrangling over that and desiring to have this gift over others. To which Paul says, we can't all be apostles. We can't all be tongue speakers. We can't all be miracle workers. And yet sometimes I think we still do exactly what Paul warns us not to. We think because I am not a preacher, because I am not a teacher, because I am not serving in some public way, I am of less value. I am of less use to God. But I want you to imagine this, working with Paul's illustration. I want you to imagine if, in fact, being a preacher was the only way to serve God. If being a preacher was the sort of height of spirituality, I want you to imagine if that were the case. I want you to imagine a church of 100 people, and let's imagine that 80 of them were preachers. I see some of you shuddering in horror at that thought. There's only one pulpit, isn't there? Not everyone is an eye. In this case, not everyone is a mouth. And for that, we should be thankful. Let me tell you what churches will always need more of. Churches will always need more preachers. But churches will always need more of this. More members who will act as salt and light in their communities. Who will go places that no, no one single preacher could ever go. 
Churches will always need members who take an interest in the local church and will be engaged with it. Churches will always need more members who will look after each other and encourage one another. Churches will always need people who will visit the sick and check in on people who need help. Churches will always need members who can engage with visitors and make them feel welcome. One of the lessons of the parable of the talents is that God asks us to use what he has given us, nothing more and nothing less. He doesn't ask us more, ask more of us than what he has, been give, has given to us. But he also doesn't ask less of us than what he's given us. And so, yes, it may be true. You don't have ten talents. You don't have the exact number, the exact same talent someone else has. But that doesn't mean you can't use your two. Actually, it means you must use your two. Whoever we are, whatever our aptitudes, whatever our age, whatever our station in life, there is something we can do. God is not going to require the 20-year-old bachelor to give marriage counseling advice to a struggling couple in their middle age or to preach about overcoming the many trials of life. God doesn't ask him to do that. But God does ask him to use his youth and energy in the capacity he can. God doesn't ask the 80-year-old to go dig a ditch at the church building or do roof repairs. But he is going to ask them to use their wisdom to counsel the young and to encourage the church and be a steadying influence in it. God doesn't require the, the struggling single mother to contribute thousands and thousands of dollars to the church. But he is going to ask her to do what she can to raise her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This one really mirrors Moses' excuse back in chapter 4 and verse 10. I just can't. I don't have that ability. God did not require Moses to do something he didn't have the ability to do. That would be cruel. But God did require Moses to do what he was able to do. And he assured him, you are able to do this. God did require Moses to do what he commanded him to do. And so there is no such thing as a valid excuse for inaction in God's kingdom. Age, lack of talent, busyness, whatever. We all have things we can't do. We all have things we can't do well. But God does require us to do the things diligently that we can. Which brings us to excuse number four. What about him? What about them? Someone, the call comes to, to stop some sin. The call comes to step up to the plate and accept some new responsibility. The call comes to serve God in some new way. And the answer almost always comes back, or often comes back, well, what about them? You know, you're asking me, you know, to uh, watch out for some sin, be vigilant about some sin, some spiritual danger you see in my life. Well, what, are, what about brother falling away? He's done things far worse than me. Shouldn't you get on his case first? Maybe we should get on his case too, but that doesn't remove your responsibility. Someone asks us to, to renew our commitment to the church, to which we say, well, Sister, sister Wishy-Washy hasn't been here for over a month. Why don't you talk to her about commitment? Maybe we should, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk to you too. Someone asks us to step up to the plate, to, to, to serve in some new way in the church, to, to fill some need, and we say, well, Brother Lazybones hasn't signed up for, for anything and I don't know how long. Get him to do it. Remember what... What Jesus said to Peter, he told Peter at the end of the Gospel of John that he would endure persecution in the coming years. To which Peter asked, what about John? Will he endure persecution too? To which I kind of want to say, do you hope that he will, Peter? Do you kind of hope John has it worse than you? I don't know. But Jesus answers in this way. 
If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Jesus says, Peter, worry about yourself. Take care of your own spiritual life and leave what's going to happen to him and the judgment of him. Leave all of that to God. There's never a valid excuse for sin. There's never a valid excuse for neglect in God's kingdom. And it doesn't matter what someone else is or isn't doing. They probably need to get their act together too. But whatever is going on with them, God is calling you to obey. The first application of Bible teaching is to me, not to everyone who I think needs it more than me. There's a story of, uh, about two men. One man asked the other man to lend him his rope. And the guy he asked replied, I can't lend you my rope. I need my rope to tie up my horse. The first man reminded him, well, you don't even own a horse. To which he said, I know, but when you don't want to lend your rope, one excuse is as good as the other. Excuses offered to God really are in the same category. They often reveal we simply don't want to do what God tells us to do. And I think the scariest part of making excuses for why we are neglecting God, the worst, the scariest part of it is that we might actually believe ourselves. And so I hope our study today will remove any excuse you've been using to avoid wholehearted discipleship. I hope it will expose to us how lame our excuses really are before God. And like God was able to do with Moses, I have unapologetically tried to dismantle any excuse you've been using to avoid serving God. And I hope you're left with the same simple choice Moses had. Will I accept God's call to obey, or will I not? Stop giving reasons why you can't, and simply make a decision. It's time to step up to the plate and say, God, I will follow you, and I will do whatever you say. If there's anyone who needs to come, drop their excuses, and dedicate their lives to God. Drop the excuse for sin and come confess that sin before God's people. Come forward now as we stand and sing. Tis the grandest thing through the ages, Trump is the grandest thing where the mortal tongue is the grandest thing that the world has sung. Our God is able to deliver thee, he is able to deliver thee, he is able to deliver thee. Sin, rest, go to him for rest. Our God is able to deliver thee. Tis the grandest thing. Let the tidings roll to the guilty heart, to the sinful soul. Look to God in faith, he will make thee whole. Our God is able to Our God is able to deliver thee.